You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. As you're getting to Hebrews chapter 1, we were just singing in reference to them, angels, Angels, this time of year, angels are everywhere, right? Their gilded images adorn the front of our Christmas cards. The outline of what we've come to envision angels to look like, you know, beautiful humans with wings, always surrounded by glowing light, complete with halos, harps, and flowing white gowns. They decorate our rooftops, our stockings hung by the fireplace, and for some of us, they sit at the top of our Christmas trees, and then as there, there, are, there are our classic beloved Christmas carols. Nearly all of them make some reference to angels. We sang one this morning. They're lilting refrains, hark the herald angels sing, or angels we have heard on high specifically focus on these heavenly creatures. Angels abound during this holiday season, as you know, because they pop up all over the Christmas story. Think about it. An angel conveyed the news to an aging priest named Zechariah, that he and his wife Elizabeth, in their old age, would bear a son named John, who would be the forerunner of the coming Messiah. An angel surprised a young, engaged, but not married, woman named Mary, with the news of her pregnancy and the explanation of exactly who that child would be. And it was an angel who reassured and redirected Joseph when he was planning to divorce Mary quietly in his disappointment. It was an angel who proclaimed glad tidings to shepherds on a hillside outside of Bethlehem that unto all a Savior had been born. It's hard to imagine Christmas without these divine messengers who herald good news of great joy for all people, the birth of Jesus Christ. And as we continue our Advent series this morning, considering the first three chapters of Hebrews, but staying in chapter 1 today, As we prepare through this book to celebrate Jesus' birthday, you're going to find this morning mention of angels again here as well. However, as we're about to hear, for the community that's receiving this letter, angels aren't just a part of the Christmas story. Surprisingly, fascinating, interestingly, the coming of Christ for this community is being perceived as the arrival of an angel among us. With that introduction, let's read those verses together. They're on the screen. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. It reads, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, 
Lord, you laid the foundation of all the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you will remain the same. Your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So again, the gist of this portion of the letter that we just read is this. The writer is addressing some Christians who were starting to believe that seeing Jesus as coming to earth as an angel was the best way to understand who Jesus is. And a little later on, we'll address why many were viewing Jesus in this way. But for now, what I'd like to do, as angels still inspire all sorts of imaginative stories and descriptions, I'd like now briefly review what the Bible does tell us about angels, with some of that information coming from this letter. I want to separate fact from fiction. So let's do that for a couple of moments. To begin, the Hebrew word for angel is pronounced malak. Its literal translation is messenger. So quite simply, an angel is a messenger of God, one who does the service of God. And in the Old Testament, these messengers of God are mentioned over 100 times. In the New Testament, over 160 times. If you were to read all of those references, you see that the Bible demonstrates that angels are intelligent, rational, created beings, albeit immaterial ones, meaning they have no bodies. They are but pure spirit. Now, this flies in the face of how we typically think about angels because our traditional depiction of angels has been shaped largely not by the Bible, but by European artists who created the standard image of an angel as a man or a woman with wings and usually also a halo. And that image has endured from the 4th century AD to the present day. But biblically, angels do not have bodies. In fact, notice in this passage in verse 7 and then again at the end in verse 14 how angels are referred to as spirits capable of taking forms of fire and light. Now the interesting thing is if you read the scriptures is despite being immaterial, the scriptures indicate angels can interact with God's creation, speaking reasoning, and intervening in specific situations. Biblically, angels are rarely seen. They're typically unseen. But there are some occasions when God makes them visible in bodily form to others. Some have asked, well, how many angels are there? The scriptures don't tell us how many angels exist. But based on every biblical reference describing them, say in places like Deuteronomy or the Gospel of Luke or the book of Revelation, it appears the total number of angels is beyond counting. And there also seems to be, as you read the Bible, some sort of hierarchy within the angelic realm as well as different types of angels. For example, and we could get, I don't want to go dive too deep here, but in the book of Jude, Michael is described as an archangel, meaning he is the head, having some sort of authority over the remaining angels. He's actually also referenced in the Old Testament book of Daniel as one of the chief princes. And then again, in Revelation chapter 12, the same archangel Michael appears to lead God's angelic army. Now, here's what's interesting, is there's only one other angel that actually is given a name in the Bible, and that angel is Gabriel, who we just spoke about at the beginning of this message. He seems to have been, had a special role given the task of making extremely important announcements, such as 
to Zechariah or Mary, as we just spoke of. Now, when we look at the Bible and we ask, well, what do angels do? There are two general tasks that are biblically attributed to angels. The first and central thing angels do is worship and praise God. And we see this in places like Isaiah and again in Revelation, which describe angels as offering a continual out loud chorus of declaration about the holiness and glory of the Lord. And this repeated chorus of praise in those sections is detailed in calling out the specific, distinctly perfect, incomparable goodness of the character of God. Angels primarily exist to worship and glorify God. The second thing angels exist for is to serve God, and they do so in all sorts of ways. A primary way that angels serve the Lord is as, again, being messengers, bringing words of of warning, of assurance, of revelation, and frequently divine announcements of how the Lord is stepping in and acting on behalf of his children. Some examples, God sent three angels, do we remember this, to Abraham and Sarah to tell them of Sarah's pregnancy with a promised son who would be named Isaac. It was an angel who also came to Sarah's servant Hagar as she fled into the desert to deliver a message of hope that she was not forgotten by God. An angel inspired the confidence of a discouraged Gideon in the book of Judges by greeting Gideon with these words. Do you remember? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And of course, as we've already talked about, angels were front and center announcing the gift of the incarnation to certain shepherds watching their flocks by night in Bethlehem. But remember, angels were also present again, appearing before the women at the empty tomb, sharing the news of resurrection. In their service to God, we see angels not just being messengers, but we also see examples biblically of angels assisting and defending the Lord's people as well. For example, angels were involved in the destruction of the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, In the days of King Hezekiah, angels defeated 185,000 Assyrian soldiers to deliver Jerusalem from invading armies. The prophetic book of Zechariah tells us angels patrol the earth as God's representatives. The books of Daniel and Revelation further indicate angels are front and center in the spiritual battle for this world. Angels carry out war against the demonic forces that oppose God. And we get a glimpse of this, this war. We get a glimpse of this spiritual battle as angels seek to minister to Christ in the midst of his temptations in the wilderness. Or angels seeking to minister to Christ during his agonizing prayer before going to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible clearly tells us that God sends angels to protect people. However, there is no definitive biblical proof of the existence of specific guardian angels assigned to persons. This is something that has developed over the years, even within the Christian community, but has no biblical basis. What we're told biblically is angels are all around us, working under the Lord's direction, and therefore sometimes intervening in our life here on earth. In fact, we're cautioned much later in this letter to the Hebrews in chapter 13 to not forget to show hospitality to strangers, For by so doing, some people, it is told, have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So the thing is, just kind of tying this all together, there can be no doubt biblically, there can be no doubt that angels are real and sometimes among us. But what the author of this letter wants to make perfectly clear is Jesus was no angel. Now, that's a very interesting expression. Typically when we say he's no angel, (laughs) Pastor Chris is no angel, right? (laughs) 
Typically that refers to that person not behaving well, behaving badly, but that's not the point that's being made here. Previously at the start of this letter, where we were last week, verses one through four, the writer, you might remember, powerfully put forward the case for Jesus' superiority, his distinctiveness from the prophets. Jesus was being, is more than a human messenger from God. So now with verses five through 14 to close out this chapter, the writer is making the case that Jesus is also superior to, distinctive from the divine messengers of God, the angels. Hence, Jesus is no angel. And what you might've noticed in the reading, if you still have your Bible open, is the writer makes this case by going to a number of different Old Testament passages And he does this in order to illustrate the difference between Christ and angels. And really the entire basis of the argument is established in verse five. And the argument is this, Jesus is no angel because Christ alone is revealed uniquely as God's son. No angel has ever been addressed by or revealed to have such a designation. And from here, starting with what God did not say about angels, the writer continues by outlining what God has said about angels. And in verse 6, you'll see that one of the responsibilities we talked about of angels is highlighted, worshiping and glorifying God. However, angels are commanded, interestingly, to fulfill this role by directing their worship toward Jesus. This is significant because again and again, if you know nothing, the Bible tells us only the Lord Only God is worthy of worship. Jesus is no angel because Jesus is to be worshiped by the angels as the son of God, one with the father and thus God in the flesh. And on that faithful night in Bethlehem, this is exactly what we witnessed the angels doing, worshiping Jesus as the son of God. Verse 8, as we continue to go through this passage, emphasizes that the reason why Jesus is worshipped by angels is not that Christ is the Son of God in the sense that we are sons and daughters of God, or not in the sense of that angels have been created by God. No, Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that he is God, the Son. As Jesus came down to earth to be with us, He did make himself a little lower than the angels by being incarnated through our flesh. But the writer wants to point out this was never a permanent arrangement. God in Christ came down to reveal the ultimate created potential of our humanity. God in Christ came down to bear the burden of our brokenness and to wipe the slate clean of all our mistakes, all our willful acts of disobedience with divine forgiveness. God came down in Christ to conquer death so that our lives could be restored to their intended purpose, full, abundant, and everlasting life. But when the work God came down in Christ to do was finished, the writer points out Jesus returned to his rightful place, the position of highest honor and power, privilege and authority over all creation. Quoting from Psalm 45, Jesus is described as sitting on the throne as king, the king of whom we have to say, God is his God and he is God. This description of Jesus that's given here dramatically contrasts with the description given of any human ruler or divine messenger. I mean, if you just think about the pattern of human history, right? Typically in human history, the more powerful a ruler is, the more likely it is that he or she will become corrupt and abuse the power he or she has. Not so with Christ, who is depicted here as ruling with a scepter of justice, 
who is described as a lover of righteousness and a hater of wickedness. The writer pushes it further in verses 10 through 12. Jesus is no angel because Jesus is the eternal creator of all things. Angels are servants of God, subordinate in status. They're fleeting and transitory. While angels are compared to created things like wind that exerts force but then vaporizes, or like flames of fire that burn with power but then flicker out, Jesus, by contrast, is described as unchanging and everlasting. Whereas messengers, angels as messengers, travel from one place to another. We see that angel Gabriel was sent from here to there. As angels are finite and limited to one place at a time, the divine Christ is described as omnipresent, as the creator who was there at the beginning, as the one who stands before and beyond all things. In fact, notice, I love this part, how the writer envisions the whole universe in comparison to Christ, envisions the whole universe as some sort of robe or garment, kind of like an old pair of jeans that will eventually wear out and fade away. And in making that description, the writer then goes on to state, no matter how things may come and go, Christ will still be there. Steady, solid, immovable, eternal. For Jesus, as the writer quotes Psalm 102 and 110, is to be pictured as the king of kings, treating his enemies as a footstool. And that image of a footstool, that image comes out of the ancient practice of a victorious king literally placing his foot on the neck of the defeated king to dramatize his triumph. Jesus' victory through the cross and the resurrection in establishing the kingdom of God on earth is absolute and total, in other words. All resistance to his authority is being put down. All who oppose grace, mercy, love, and the truth of God will be brought into submission. Jesus is no angel because angels are dispatched to do his bidding as king. And so what we have in these verses that we looked at this morning, in this patchwork of Old Testament quotations, the writer of this letter has crafted a hymn of praise for Jesus. And the thing is, with every one of these high and lofty references, it would be totally inappropriate what's written here unless Jesus is God. Which begs the question for us, if Jesus is God, if that's just so, so apparent based upon what this writer has put, why were some believers thinking that Jesus was an angel in disguise. Now, the answer you'll get from some, some will argue, well, this was due to a problem of angel worship that was going on at the time. In fact, if you know your Bible really well, there's a really quick reference in Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter two, I think, about this particular concern. But it's here and there, real quick, it's just a quick mention. And, the, and if we look in a little bit into history at that time, in Jewish thought, angels were understood to be the highest and most exalted of all God's created beings. In particular, angels were associated with the giving of the Torah, the Mosaic law in early Judaism. In fact, if you read the book of Acts chapter 7 in that incredible speech made by the first Christian martyr, Stephen, he makes reference to this tradition of angels being the one who gave the law to the people. Now, on top of this just understanding in Judaism already, somewhere between the second century BC up until the time of Jesus in the first century, Angels grew even more in popularity within Judaism. People appear to have been influenced by some of the teachings we've now discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, teachings that give a more prominent role to angels than to any other person that God had sent to accomplish his purposes. And this is sort of mirrored still today. Still today, there are many who are all about what's called angelology, 
the study of angels, both good and evil, evil being demons. This this practice of angels and demons continues to fascinate and confuse many Christians. Like the original recipients of this letter, some believers within the church can become obsessed with the names and activities of angels to the point of spiritual paranoia. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, but some groups, say like Jehovah Witnesses, for example, still actually view Christ as being nothing more than an angel of the Lord. Did you know that? But in saying all this, I don't think that the problem here really is about angel worship. In saying all that, I don't think the problem that's going on here is really about angel worship. The way I read this letter, the issue here is most likely not a problem with angels. It's a problem with Jesus. The problem that's being addressed is not elevating the significance of angels as much as it is not elevating the significance, the glory of Christ. We'll figure this out later. It's because again, this, later, this letter just starts right off. But as we get deeper into this letter, what you're going to discover is that this was a community of people under a great deal of pressure. They were experiencing persecution. And as a result of constant persecution, they were exhausted. They were fearful of continued hardship. And in the midst of all of their struggles, they were wrestling with the challenge of following Jesus. This weary congregation, in other words, was tired of a gospel that involved suffering, of a faith that grew out of trial and pain, of a redemption that required sacrifice, dying to oneself. And so they were looking for a way to embrace the victory of resurrection without the battle of the cross. And if you think, on the one hand, they couldn't deny the reality of their Christian experience, right? There certainly seemed to be something in it and something to all that Jesus had said and done while he was here. And on the other hand, remember this letter is written primarily to Jews, Hellenistic Jews. So these are Jews who followed the way of Moses, but also had adopted Greco-Roman practices. On the other hand, they simply couldn't go back to their former way of life, Judaism, still clinging to the belief that Jesus was the Messiah because their Jewish brothers and sisters would have none of that. And so it appears as we get deeper into this letter, many were attempting to live out of a compromised position, saying perhaps Jesus was not the Messiah after all, but he certainly was something very special, like an angel. Even more than that, the greatest angel of all time. And in response, as we've heard, the writer of this letter pushes back, Jesus is the Son of God in a way that no angel ever was or is. (laughs) This is one of those sermons, the first, like, whatever, three quarters, I'm looking at it. Some of you are, like, totally into this, and others of you have that glazed-over look right now. Like, some of you are with me, and others of you are like, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, this is great. This is fascinating. Wow. Okay. What does this have to do with any of us? You don't have to raise a hand. I know who you are. I do. I, I, some of you have really good poker faces. Most of you, not at all. Not at all. I don't have a good poker face either. Very obvious. So what does this have to do with any of us? As fascinating as this might be. Well, here's what I, here what I would, here's what I'd say with you. While I think our circumstances obviously are somewhat different, I still think we, like the original recipients of this letter, can fall into the same temptation. We can fall into their temptation to adopt a diminished view of Jesus in our lives. Now, our circumstances are unlike 
those of this Hebrew audience. We are not facing external pressure or persecution in order to lessen the significance of Christ. No, I think the temptation we face is more subtle. It's a more nagging internal one to make Jesus less than he is in our lives. It's, in other words, the temptation to round off the more uncomfortable edges of Jesus. You with me? I mean, when's the last time, just ask yourself, when's the last time we considered not just all Jesus did for us? I mean, we're all about what Jesus does for us, right? Jesus died for us. Amen. Jesus rose from the dead for us. Amen. Jesus is coming back to make all things new. We are all about what Jesus does for us. No problems. But when's the last time we really paid attention, not just to what Jesus did for us, but everything Jesus taught us and told us in terms of following him, living for him. I mean, Jesus says and does a lot of things for which we praise him. The offer of grace and forgiveness, praise Jesus. The security of unconditional love and the assurance of eternal hope, praise Jesus. The promise of healing and life beyond death, praise you, Jesus. But Jesus also says and does a lot of things that make us uncomfortable, nervous, and sometimes even downright angry. I mean, it was Jesus who said, it's not about what you look like on the outside. It's not about the appearance you project. It's about what's going on inside of you. It's about all that stuff that you try to hide that matters. It was Jesus who said, stop judging all the stuff that's wrong with everyone else and be honest about your own problems and come clean. Remember that the next time you scream at your television set or the radio. Jesus is the one who said, forgive those who persecute you. What? Forgive those who per persecute you. You come at me, bro, I'm coming back. You hit me, I'm going to hit harder. You take advantage of me, I'm going to get my pound of flesh. Jesus says, no, no, no. Forgive those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. And that, that in and of itself ticks us off. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Forgive those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. And then Jesus takes it up a notch and says, love your enemies. Love my enemies? I don't love them. That's why they're my enemies. <laughs> it's Jesus who says, give away what you have been given to serve others. Give away what I've been given to serve others? Wait a second. What I have, I need. What I have, I've earned. What I have is mine. Jesus says, no. Everything you have, not some of the things you have, not the things you really don't care that much about, everything you have has been given to you, not primarily for you taking care of yourself first. Hey, I'll take care of myself first, then I'll worry about everyone else. Jesus doesn't give us that. Jesus says, everything you have been given is not primarily so you can take care of yourself. It has been given to you primarily so that you can be my representative, my vessel of serving and caring for others. And if you give everything I've given you away to do that, I will continue to provide and you won't worry about a thing. Jesus is the one who says, in fact, be willing to offer your very life 
your very life, not just for your friends, not just for the people who love you. I mean, we're all about that. Hey, if you like me and I like you, I'll give you whatever you want. I'm generous, I'm compassionate. But Jesus says, that's easy. Yes, it's easy to help people you like. It's easy to give your life for someone you love and certainly who loves you back. But Jesus says, no, give your life. Be willing to offer your life, not just for your friends, but for strangers, outsiders, people with whom you wouldn't normally associate. Jesus says and does much that perplexes us, confronts us, that challenges us, that let's be honest, time and again exposes us for the frauds and fakers we often are. Therefore, it can be tempting, right? Come on. It can be tempting. I'm admitted, it can be tempting to be selective, to hear what we want to hear. La, 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 la. Jesus, I don't hear you right now. To see what we want to see. I don't know. I don't read that part of the Bible. And at this time of year especially, can we just call it out? At this time of year especially, it's easy to do this because at this time of year, everybody loves baby Jesus. Nobody has a problem with baby Jesus. Baby Jesus, he's so cute and cuddly and unable to speak. (laughs) Right? Baby Jesus, who we can choose when we want to pick up and hold and who we can also choose when we want to put down and say, hush. You know what you need, Jesus, is a nap. (laughs) Baby Jesus is awesome because that version of Jesus is much more manageable, much more palatable, much more controllable than the Jesus who grows up and tells us to take up our cross and follow him. My friends, which Jesus are you coming to worship this Christmas? The Jesus we would like him to be The Jesus that frankly fits better with the world we feel comfortable in or with the world we want to fit into. The Jesus who validates our personal pursuits and our private kingdoms. In other words, the Jesus of our imaginations. Or are we coming to worship this Christmas the Jesus of the incarnation? The Jesus who calls us to seek first, not second, not third, not last, first, the kingdom of God, the Jesus who tells us to be in the world, not in a bubble, be in the world, but not of the world. The Jesus who was born to rescue us from our selfish need to destroy ourselves and to judge and battle against other people. The Jesus who lived to die so that all persons would be free. The Jesus who rose again so that none might perish, but instead experience eternal life. The Jesus who is coming back to bring heaven finally once and for all to earth and in so doing, making all things new. Which Jesus are you coming to worship this Christmas? The Jesus who refuses to be rounded off at the edges? The Jesus who defies our superficial definitions? Who resists all of our efforts to edit him? To make him fit into our image? Or the Jesus who works through his Holy Spirit to transform us into his image. Jesus Christ is no angel. He is infinitely superior to angels. Angels were created not to compete with Christ, but to worship Christ and serve him. And Jesus may be no angel, but maybe we could be more like angels. 
Because again, we can learn something from angels that count, can counter the temptation to somehow lessen the significance of Christ in our lives and in this world. What do angels exist to do? They exist to worship the Lord. We can, you and I, we can wor- join worship that is already in progress. We can join that continual chorus of praise that the angels offer up to God in Christ. And we can do that not just by lifting up our voices in song, but lifting up our lives in a posture of thanksgiving and rejoicing to the Lord. When you get up in the morning to when you fall asleep at night, what is the posture of your life? Is it a posture of thanksgiving and rejoicing to God or is it a posture of complaining? Is it a posture of blaming? Is it a posture of venting your frustrations? Is it a posture of taking it out on everyone else? What is the posture of your life? If the angels find it their highest joy to praise God continuously, shouldn't we too? And again, the chief way angels worship the Lord on earth is by serving Christ. They worship Jesus, not just by singing, but by being messengers of the gospel, always pointing to Jesus so that others would hold fast to him, would love, trust, and treasure him, and thereby finally reach Christ in the fullness of their salvation. My friends, in the offering of our lives, how we speak the way we carry and conduct ourselves before others, are we bringing glory to Christ? Are we pointing to Jesus? Or are we, through how we speak, how we carry and conduct ourselves, diminishing the true reflection of the goodness of Jesus? This is harsh, and I'm putting it right on me. Do people look at you and say, you say you believe in Jesus. You say you follow Christ. And if that's what Jesus is like, I want no part of him. And if that's who Jesus is, I'll pass. Or do people look at you, not perfect, none of us are perfect, but see Christ at work in you, the hope of glory, and go, I want that. I want to know him. And they're not just going to see it because you do a lot of really nice stuff. I'm not talking about being fake, happy, happy, clappy, sappy Christians. I'm not talking about putting on Jesus t-shirts and sweaters and throwing out trite bumper sticker slogans disguised as biblical revelation where you're like, it's like Christians going around the world just slapping stickers all over everybody. Jesus is awesome. I'm talking about the willingness to have eyes to see Do you let the Spirit give you eyes to see, to have ears to hear? Are you letting the Spirit open your ears to hear the cries of this world? And you cannot see and you cannot hear the cries of this world if you're adding to the noise. Are you letting the Holy Spirit move you to enter into the darkness of the suffering and chaos of another person? All of us, we have some, at least one person in our lives, you can, they're probably coming to your mind right now, and maybe even more than one. Are you entering into the darkness and the chaos of that person? Are you willing to do that? And not just offer them platitudes, not just do the Christian version of a drive-by. God's got a wonderful plan for your life, praying for you. God op- closes the door, he opens up another one. You'll be great. But are you willing to extend to that person real, tangible, compassionate help to be present for them, to be willing to go the distance with them, to say to them, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. 
I will be with you till the end. And you're saying that as a reflection of Emmanuel, God in Christ who is with us and for us. It's Christmas time. And we fill up this time of year, and I'm not trying to be a Scrooge or a Grinch. We fill up this time with all kinds of crap. All kinds of stuff. And every year we pile on more. And what I'm, I'm asking us is how, at this time of year, maybe more than any other, are we seeking to encourage and help others in the name of Jesus? To tangibly and practically extend love and compassion, grace and mercy, and thus point to the real and living hope of Christ. You can't buy that. You can't mail that. And that posture of living is not something that you just do, you get all dressed up for and play nice one day of the year. It is allowing your entire life to be lived in a posture of worship and service to Christ. My friends, angels are among us. The universe are all around us is filled with these messengers, these helpers. Jesus wants us to be encouraged and help and hopeful. That's why this chapter ends with that amazing promise, that last verse that tells us these angels, these heavenly worshipers, all of them are sent to serve us so that we would safely arrive home. And like the angels, we have been born anew in Christ. We have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have been sent as expressive worshipers, as humble servants, in pointing and leading others to Christ, in declaring the good news about Jesus far and wide, in spreading the gospel in word and deed to the very ends of the earth. That's not just the gift of Christmas. That's the gift we've been given to share every day of our lives until Jesus calls us home. Which Jesus are you coming to worship this Christmas? The Jesus of your imagination or the Jesus of the incarnation? Glory in excelsis Deo.